Here are some of the horrific headlines. The UN is issuing a dire warning on a harrowing scenario analysis of how human civilization might collapse in coming decades. Around one million species now face extinction. Many. Have you ever felt it's all hysteria? Existential threat to human civilization. That environmental Cassandras have been around too long to take seriously. There will be irreversible damage. To- or maybe they're right about the coming environmental apocalypse. But it's just too late or too big a problem to do anything. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Let's pause the soundtrack for a minute and ask the experts, should we be scared? Yes, we should be scared. We should be scared stiff. But we shouldn't be scared to inactivity because there's a lot we can do to solve these problems. That's Professor Steve Pakala. Steve is one of the most knowledgeable people on the planet about, well, the planet. I'm a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at Princeton University. I've worked on primarily on problems of carbon and climate um, for the last several decades and really in all dimensions of the problem. My name is Catherine Rehimaki, and I'm a geoscientist who works on science literacy. Steve is here to help us understand the scope of the problems and to start us on a journey toward practical solutions that will require expertise and buy-in from people across our societies. Steve, welcome to Episode 1 of All for Earth. I'm happy to be here. Tell me a little bit about how you frame the broadest view of today's environmental issues and the ways in which they may intersect with each other. So uh, there are four big environmental problems that are much in the news. You hear a lot about the climate problem these days. It's really on the on 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 everyone's mind uh, with the coming election in the U.S. and that sort of thing, and it emerging as such a big a big issue. But you also hear a lot about the water shortage, the water crisis, and the fact that humanity's need for fresh water is growing at a time when climate is disrupting its supply. Climate change is disrupting its supply. You hear a lot about the food problem. Humanity's demand for food is is uh, slated to double by mid-century over the next 30 years at the same time that we're trying to solve the climate problem. But at the same time, we're trying to solve the water problem. And of course, you need water to grow to grow crops. And finally, you hear about the biodiversity problem, the the impending possibility of a mass extinction caused by people. So these four huge environmental problems, climate, water, food, and biodiversity are all happening simultaneously. They interact with one another and that the solutions for some would actually damage others. And so you have to you have to solve them all simultaneously if you want to avoid calamity. And unfortunately, this is falling on the coming generation now. There's 30 years in which to do this, sort of the lifetime of a career. It's the the sad bequest of my generation to theirs. Can you talk a little bit about some specific interactions, sort of how the uh, trade-offs might work for one issue intersecting with another? Sure. um, You hear all the time that one of the big solutions to solve the carbon and climate problem is to grow trees. We're going to grow trees all over the place because trees eat atmospheric carbon dioxide, the primary greenhouse gas that humanity has added to the atmosphere by burning fossil fuel um, and that is causing climate change. And trees eat this stuff for a living and turn it into tree. And that removes CO2 from the atmosphere and helps to mitigate the climate problem. This always sounds like a great idea because it would allow you to still do some emitting 
and take the emissions back by growing trees. But the problem is that you need a huge amount of land to do this. And that land has to come from somewhere. Just about all the land on the planet already has a designated use. It either is growing crops or it's supplying fodder for livestock or it's a biodiversity preserve. And if you then take, say, a large amount of agricultural land out of production to grow forest on it to solve the climate problem, then what do you do when the food supply needs to double? Okay, let's keep playing this game. So how about water and climate and water and food? Yeah, so water and and food is pretty obvious. Um, Climate change changes the distribution of of rainfall around the planet and then inevitably puts some of the rain where the people and the agriculture aren't, right? And the people that are left behind are now encased and surrounded, circumscribed by borders that are not necessarily permeable. And what are they to do? You know, you said water is obvious, but um, I think it's not obvious to people how much water we use for agriculture as opposed to directly drinking the stuff, right? And so I think the perilousness of that situation that something like three quarters of our water usage is for agriculture, um, I think that sort of highlights the potentially dire nature of how then changing water supplies might impact um, real people. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. Um, So much of our water use is for irrigated agriculture. Now, the good news is that like a lot of these problems, there is the possibility of of avoiding um, the worst of the catastrophe, right? Because because with water, um, there are policies that can make much more efficient the use of water in agriculture and for other purposes. But we'll talk about that, I guess, later in the program. (laughs) <laughs> we can talk about that now. <laughs> um, that, now is a great time I'd to be talk jumping about the gun, that. <laughs> but I'm like, you know, it's always easy. In, in my in my business, I work on both the the environmental problems themselves and on the solutions. And people I know in the in the first uh, in, in in sort of the first profession, people who work on environmental problems, are constantly bummed out. And they're bummed out because we aren't taking these things seriously enough and the problems are getting worse. The climate problem is probably the worst of these because, you know, everybody knows there's this dire problem. And then where are the big emissions cuts, you know? And at the same time, if you're a scientist, everything you study is getting more and more negatively impacted. You discover more and more negative consequences all the time. On the other hand, if you're a person who works on solutions because these problems have caught the attention of the best and brightest. So many young people with real talent have moved into these areas. We have experienced a revolution in our capacity to address them. And so if you're a technologist in one of these problems, you tend to be kind of an optimist because all of a sudden you have the tools you need to address them. Because I work on both, I feel whipsawed. But (laughs) but, um, but there, um, there, there really is uh, reason for optimism. Well, so I'm curious, um, you know, what what skill set you feel is really needed to solve these problems. Um, you and I have worked together on a course that you developed um, in investigating the ways in which these four issues collide. Um, 
But the other aspect of it is not just that you're bringing together four issues, but also different dimensions of looking at the problems. And so you represent a scientific perspective. We have an economist. We have an ethicist. We have someone who is really bringing kind of a communications and culture perspective. Um, can you talk a little bit about sort of why you feel like the all of those dimensions are needed? The, the scale of these problems is global. And, and humanity has never successfully tackled a problem of this sort, let alone, alone four of them sim simultaneously. If you were to successfully solve these problems, among other things, you're going to need to plan the use of every square meter of the Earth's surface at, at mid-century. And it would require a degree of international cooperation that is, is, uh, is difficult. Uh, to imagine. So the easy way to think about it is that if you want to solve just, for instance, the climate problem, you need to have technological – the technological capacity to provide the energy that people need without the, the, the greenhouse pollution that our current energy system produces. So the technology is really important. You need to understand how much of that you need and by when. And those are scientific issues, all right? So, so the, science, the basic science is important and the sort of engineering technology is important. But of course, the, the technology has to be um, economically and politically feasible to implement. It can't be something that nobody could actually accomplish, could actually do. Right. It has to be ethically defensible or you're never going to sustain the political momentum to get the job done. And it inevitably is going to involve the creative side of humanity because it's, it's, it's a generation. It's decades to, to solve these problems. And you have to sort of sustain the empathy of a species for all of us over, over that period. You know, these problems don't just affect us in the United States. They affect people in, in Assam province and in India and in, you know, all over the world, people very far removed from us. And, and very unlike us. And we're going to have to understand what they're facing because their capacity to, to, uh, to um, uh, withstand the, 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 um, the, the damages is, is sort of much less than ours. And, and it seems like the sort of arts and literature part of that is partly around building empathy that's beyond just policy and sort of making our hearts feel <laughs> what they're experiencing, not just our heads uh, understand it. Yeah. I mean, the arts and literature are all about uh, – they're the only way we have really to be able to understand the way a person very unlike we are in a culture that's far removed from ours, maybe even a time that's far removed from ours, the way that person feels. And so, and so, so much of our understanding comes from how we feel about, about something. Right. So let's zoom in then on sort of the specifics of solutions. Do you see things that are coming into discussion that are grand enough, big enough scale that they can make a difference but are also feasible to accomplish? Um, and sort of it seems like that tug is really important that, you know, it's got to be huge because these are huge issues, but it also has to be feasible to happen. With the climate problem, um, 15 years ago, if you said, do we have a cost-effective technology to replace fossil fuels wholesale? The answer would have been, well, we do, but it's expensive. All right. 
it's really expensive. And now, just in the last few years, we, we've experienced sort of the coming of age of an energy revolution that is unlike any we've seen in more than a century as, as a species. All of a sudden, wind and solar are the cheapest forms of energy, far cheaper than any other form in the right location and getting cheaper by the minute. All right. This was the result of sustained, thoughtful policies by the nations of the world that have slowly but surely bought down the cost of wind and solar and made it possible to generate electricity um, uh, without, without putting greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and for cheaper than we can do it today. Now, of course, the problem is that the wind doesn't blow all the time and the sun doesn't shine all the time. So the, the source is intermittent. You need some sort of firm source of power to back those up. One of the firm sources of power is natural gas with carbon capture and storage. Now, the natural gas supply, though, even a few years ago, was not uh, sufficient to, to expand to the level that you would need if you were going to rely on that as the firm source of power. But there was a there was a shale gas revolution and the cost of natural gas is now much lower than it has been and the supply is um, uh, more than sufficient for, for what would be needed. Finally, you hear that batteries, um, after not really changing, we had lead acid battery cards in, in the early, you know, 1900 and, and, and we had them you know, 15 years ago. And then all of a sudden, lithium-ion batteries leapt out of cell phones and into cars. And now every major automotive manufacturer and most companies think that we've got a completely electric future for our light and medium-duty vehicles. And the, the price of energy storage is going down fast enough that you can see a time when a lot of the firming up of the energy supply can be done by something other than fossil with carbon capture and storage or nuclear, which are currently our two, our two uh, cost-effective options. So that's also changed fundamentally. Um, are there things that are... Um, right now, looking forward, that will do the same thing that policies for bringing down solar and wind costs have done leading up till now. So are we investing sufficiently in R&D? Well, as an R&D person, the answer is no. <laughs> All right. um, uh, we should be investing more in long-term R&D. At the same time, uh, this energy revolution is in is is in full swing, and so many smart people are firmly lodged in it now that I expect more uh, more innovation. Um, we have probably even more acute need on the on the food side. Mm -hmm. We have to we have to double food production on the current arable land if we're going to solve these problems, and we can probably do it, but that's going to require sustained hard effort. But we do have tools that we can bring to bear on this. But that's a science problem still. Right. And it's a science problem that's got to keep going steadily. The, you know, the, the, the crop varieties have to stay ahead of a changing climate and they have to stay, stay ahead of evolving uh, pests uh, uh, for that whole period. On the water problem, there are a lot of technological solutions that can be done also, but there are some great policy solutions as well. Uh, as you know very well, Catherine, I think I learned it from you. Um, the, the, um, if you price water, if you actually charge for the water that, that uh, farmers use to irrigate, then the, the use of water goes down just dramatically by, by a factor of 10 or even more. So, so much of the solution to the water problem is changing the sort of political acceptability 
of, of uh, distributing the resource in a way that causes people to care about how much of it they use. And on the biodiversity problem, there, um, uh, we've kind of got to leave nature alone um, to, to maintain the biodiversity. We have to actually set land aside, and we know how to do that. But the one thing we can't do, for instance, is to cut down the tropical rainforests. And the way not to cut down the tropical rainforests is to be able to grow our food on land uh, that, that isn't tropical rainforest currently and to solve the climate problem without converting, for instance, the tropical rainforest into a gigantic biofuels plantation or something like that. Right. right. So, so let me bring it to like a really specific example, which is the one that everyone is talking about right now, the Green New Deal. Do you see the discussion around the Green New Deal as being a net positive or problematic for actually making progress on some of these issues? So, so I applaud the energy and the intent and the enthusiasm behind the Green New Deal. I think that – you know, I, I was in uh, Washington at the – at the, I think it was with the House of Representatives, um, the day the Green New Deal came out. And, and it was fantastic because I went from fringe to center <laughs> you know, in one fell swoop. And the thing about the Green New Deal that they've embraced and embraced correctly is, is the job that humanity faces. The, the job that humanity faces is to eliminate net greenhouse gas emissions by humanity altogether. The problem with CO2 is that essentially it stays in the atmosphere for so long. You should think about it as forever. Yeah. The real answer is sort of centuries. But still, it's up there for so long that you actually just have to stop emitting it or it just keeps making climate change worse and worse and worse and worse. And so to complete and, – and when? How, how soon do we have to eliminate it? Well, you know, there's a lot of work that's been done. The, the political solution is to limit the – atmospheric or, or the, the climate change to two degrees Celsius mean mean warming or or one and a half degrees aspirationally. That was part of the Paris Paris Agreement. Right. And to do that, we basically have to eliminate greenhouse emissions by humanity sometime uh, for two degrees late in the century, for one and a half at mid-century. Even if you were going to do two degrees in developed countries, you'd have to do it by mid-century. And so that means this sort of 30-year period coming up, you've got to go from basically a full-on fossil economy to, to nothing, mm -hmm. right? To, to, to net zero emissions. So, so that's what the Green New Deal has embraced, is that wholesale swapping out. And it's put the agenda in the front of everybody in the United States now. Right. And so that's really to be applauded. Now, exactly how fast you could do it, what sort of policies there are there, there's a lot of hard work yet to go there. But I actually was talking with some of the people that are working hard on the on the policies behind the Green New Deal, and that's still evolving for them. The first documents that came out, I think, are probably best viewed as aspirational. And very right? vague. <laughs> and very vague, yeah. yeah. And so what will finally be transpired? Uh, well, we'll see. Okay, there's a lot of hard work that needs to be done there. Um, I, I want to just finish our conversation um, 
<laughs> talking about what you're working on now and maybe as a, a starting point for that, reflecting on where you started 15 years ago, which is that perhaps what you're most known for is the strategy of kind of incrementally reducing how much CO2 we're emitting and the whole bunch of that put together would get us to a more stable climate. Um, can you talk about how that work has evolved and what specifically you're working on now? Sure. The the um in 2003, I think it was, all right, more than more than 15 years ago, um, a guy named Rob Sokolow and I were annoyed that um, one of the claims that was common in public discourse was that humanity lacked the technology to get started on the carbon and climate problem. We knew that we didn't have the technology to sort of finish off, to go to net zero emissions. But we also strongly suspected that we had the technology to get started in a serious way. And so we decided to um, figure out what technologies were in the marketplace already that could cause – allow humanity to freeze emissions, which we did not do, right, in 2003. Freeze them through 2050 and then subsequently be in a much better position to drive them down when we had better technology. And so we inventoried the technologies that could do that and uh, and there turned out to be more than we needed to get the job done. Right. Now, we we thought about the problem in that way because we, because we lacked the technology to solve the problem altogether. We just had enough – enough technology to get started in a meaningful way. And as I said, there's been a revolution since then. And so all of a sudden now we actually have the technology (laughs) to to finish it off. And so it's been marvelous to see the energy come out and the Green New Deal and the many other proposals to do this and the growing interest in conservative and Republican circles too in addressing this problem. And so so here at, at Princeton, we've put together a project that has many, many different participants in it from all kinds of of, uh, organizations and companies and whatnot. And what we're doing is to cost out for the United States the transition to one of several net zero emitting energy systems. We're trying to be completely policy agnostic and so we're costing out the transition to one that would be favored by the by the most intense greens with no fossil or nuclear at all in it. Mm-hmm. Um, we're trying to cost out uh, uh, systems that would be – in which we use everything that we currently have, which would include fossil and nuclear. And we're even costing out one, for instance, in which the uh, not-in-my-backyard backlash uh, for all the wind and solar you need actually causes us to invest even more heavily than would be economically optimal in in fossil with CCS and nuclear. So we're trying to actually just provide um, a blueprint, find out you know how many hard hats you've got to you got you you've got to hire and where and when, how many miles of of high voltage DC lines do you need to build and how much do they cost and where are you going to put them and how do you get them regula- you know how do you get them through the regulators and how many miles of pipe and how much steel and how much aluminum and how much everything, how much land to figure out what the sort of structural impediments are to the transition to to um, bring as much rationality as possible to the developing passion here um, so that so that everyone can sort of have a more productive debate. And who's at the table for those discussions? So um, we so uh, um, there are personnel from a wide variety of of organizations and and um, it, it's it's probably not right to say that the this project is endorsed by all these organizations. We yeah. haven't even come to the conclusions yet. But the people who are actively working on it 
come from organizations as diverse as the academy, um, but also environmental NGOs, some of the biggest environmental NGOs, and also some of the biggest fossil energy companies in in the in the uh, world. And it's important to have them there because. Well, it's important to have them there because they know a lot, yeah. all right, about about some uh, some aspects of this problem. When it comes time also for um, for the veracity of this work to be judged, you want evidence-based decision makers yeah. to to um, to to look at it and to be able to look at it. And so um, some people um, – uh, and so the, the, the group I, I mentioned spans a broad range of political constituencies too right. and, and might help obviate some of the confirmation bias that would otherwise develop in that process. But the main reason I want all those people at the table right now is that they all know something, right? <laughs> They've all attacked this problem from different angles okay. and it's such a hard problem that you actually – have to have all those voices in the room to come up with any solution that you can that will actually work, right? So you said that you um, don't have conclusions yet, um, but I want to finish with two questions. One is, are you optimistic that some of this will be feasible? Maybe not every single pathway, but that it will be doable. And then the second question is. What happens next? Who do you need to convince? So I, I actually absolutely believe this is feasible now. The United States is the best resourced country in the world um, to to go to net zero. We've got fantastic um, resources for wind and solar. We've got fantastic technological capability that you know that develops new things all the time. We've got a fantastic supply of natural gas. We have geologic reservoirs that are mapped better than any place in the world where we could put CO2 uh, if, we, if we needed to. So, and, and also we have a, um, a land, okay? We have all kinds of land. We're actually a land-rich country in a way that few countries are. And so, and so doing some negative emissions by, by, for instance, growing trees is actually feasible in the United States, whereas it wouldn't be feasible in, in many other countries. So I actually do believe that this is feasible, not just feasible, but probably possible to do for about what consumers pay today. Mm-hmm. All right. So this is really just a, an orange instead of an apple if we just go about it in a deliberative way. Who do I have to convince? Well, the answer is um, th- this is a resource for people who want to do the convincing. That's the way I look at it. We're not going to sort of go out and do the convincing. That's mm-hmm. not our job. Our job is to make sure that people who want to convince for a living from all different perspectives, people who want market-based solutions, people who want command and control, people who want a carbon tax, whatever, that they know what it means to actually solve the problem. But, but primarily policymakers. Oh so, yeah, but but also but also people in in companies and you know, uh, what is a po- policymakers respond to lobbying? Who does the lobbying? <laughs> you know, groups with money, right? So so um, and interests. So it's really everybody, yeah. right? And ultimately, it's policymakers that are going to have to make right. make the decision, and not just federal policymakers, but also state, local, 
Um, well, Steve, thank you so much for all of this insight. Um, thank you for setting the stage for our series of interviews, delving into more details about the environmental challenges and solutions. And hopefully we'll be able to get into even more aspects of all of the topics that you've given us a glimpse of. Thank you. Well, thanks for inviting me. Steve Pakala is a professor at Princeton University and one of the leading voices in environmental science and policy. Please subscribe to our podcast feed to get our subsequent episodes. Until then, be well. All for Earth is a production of the Princeton Environmental Institute and the Princeton University Office of Communications in collaboration with Princeton's Council on Science and Technology and assistance from the Office of Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. Our executive producer is Margaret Koval, and our audio engineer and editor is Daniel Kearns. The opinions expressed here represent the views of the individuals involved and not those of the university. Princeton podcasts are available on all major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and the Google Podcast apps.